Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's DACA week. The decision we've all been waiting for, and what a decision it was. And the perfect decision to kick off episode 8 of Immigration Review and to celebrate our 2000th download of the show. Thank you all for listening and please keep reviewing and sharing. We have five cases to discuss this week on the show, and like Supreme Court justices, no two are alike. They span the right to counsel, the marriage fraud bar, particular social groups, and more. Now, on to the first case. First up is DHS et al. v. Regents of the University of California, a.k.a. the DACA decision, published by the Supreme Court on June 18, 2020. Everyone's talking about this one. This is fantastic news for the 700,000 DACA recipients and their loved ones and allies. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, with Chief Justice Roberts as the swing vote and writing the opinion, held that the Trump administration violated the Administrative Procedures Act when it terminated DACA. Eight justices fairly summarily dismissed the equal protection claims, but they did seemingly at least consider President Trump's apparently racist remarks in its analysis. So that's something. So, DACA's back for renewals and employment authorizations. But the Trump administration can try to terminate it again, and they probably will. Elections matter, and November can't come soon enough. From a legal standpoint, as many of the lawyers in the audience know already, this is a pure administrative law and jurisdiction case. And I'm in negotiations to have the godfather, emphasis on God, of immigration, administrative law, and jurisdiction to join me for a special episode later this week to discuss the implications of this case. So stay tuned. And that, for now, is DHS et al. v. Regents of the University of California et al. Continuing on, we've got another Friday publication by the BIA that rules against the non-citizen, matter of R.I. Ortega. In this case, the BIA held that a non-citizen who conspires to engage in marriage fraud to obtain a K-1 fiancé visa is subject to the INA 204C2 bar, and that for that provision to apply, the conspiracy must require an overt act to engage in marriage fraud. Lots to unpack there, so here we go. The facts. A U.S. citizen mother filed an I-130 petition for her son, Mr. Ortega. An I-130 petition, if approved, is basically recognition by USCIS that a relationship exists between the petitioner and the beneficiary, which qualifies a non-citizen for an immigrant visa. So in this case, the I-130 petition is a determination by USCIS that yes indeed, Mrs. Ortega is actually Mr. Ortega's mother, and Mrs. Ortega is a U.S. citizen. 
Under immigration law, when the petitioner is a U.S. citizen's spouse, a visa is immediately available, meaning that the beneficiary spouse can come to the United States or adjust to lawful permanent resident status in the United States immediately. In this case, because the I-130 was filed by a U.S. citizen parent for her unmarried son over the age of 21 years old, Mr. Ortega, the I-130 petition is a first preference family category petition. The backlog on visas for first preference petitions is about six years right now. So even if the I-130 was approved, the beneficiary, Mr. Ortega, would have to wait six years to adjust to LPR status, or if he's outside the United States, six years to enter the U.S. In this case, Mrs. Ortega's I-130 petition for her son, Mr. Ortega, was indeed approved way back in 2008. However, years before that, in 2004, according to the BIA, Mr. Ortega fraudulently tried to come to the U.S. on a temporary K-1 fiancé visa. According to the BIA, he wasn't really in love, it turns out, but was just trying to come to the United States. In 2017, USCIS revoked Mrs. Ortega's I-130 petition for her son, Mr. Ortega, based on INA Section 204C. Under that statute, no visa petition, i.e. an I-130, shall be approved if 1. The non-citizen has previously had an I-130 petition approved based on a fraudulent marriage, or 2. USCIS determines that the non-citizen, quote, has attempted or conspired to enter into a marriage for the purposes of evading the immigration laws, end quote. In this case, prong one is plainly not applicable. Mr. Ortega never had an I-130 approved based on any marriage. This case is all about the second prong. Here's a bit of background about the K-1 fiancé visa. If a non-citizen applies for and enters the United States on a temporary K-1 visa, they must have the bona fide intent to marry and must do so within 90 days of entering the United States. A K-1 can only marry the U.S. citizen petitioner. He or she cannot find love elsewhere and then adjust to LPR status on the basis of this new love in the United States. If the K-1 and his or her fiancé don't marry, the K-1 non-citizen must return home. Hence the popular television show, 90 Day Fiancé. But if they do marry, a K-1 non-immigrant can then become an LPR without need to file an I-130 petition. So it's a pretty nice advantage. So the question in this case, does applying for a K-1 non-immigrant visa bar a non-citizen from a later I-130 petition under INA Section 204C? To reach its conclusion in this case, the BIA looked to the plain meaning of the word conspiracy as used at 204C2 and held that a non-citizen is barred under 204C if he commits an overt act to enter into a marriage for the purpose of evading immigration laws. And, according to the BIA, the filing of a K-1 petition qualifies as an overt act. Mr. Ortega satisfied the overt act requirement in this case, and so, the I-130 petition filed by Mr. Ortega's mother is revoked, and Mr. Ortega cannot become an LPR. I can hear moms throughout the world howling in protest. And that's the holding. Now for some good stuff, specifically on overt acts and conspiracy. As the BIA notes, the words attempted or conspired, as used at Section 204C, are not defined in the Immigration and Nationality Act. 
Therefore, in this case, the BIA engaged in a textual analysis to define the word conspired under immigration law, as Congress apparently intended. And in this decision, the BIA defines the word conspired, again as Congress apparently intended, to include an overt act. And importantly, the federal definition of conspiracy, used at criminal law and under common law, also requires an overt act. But in 2010, in matter of Richardson, the board held that the term conspiracy at INA Section 101A43U, the conspiracy aggravated felony provision, is not limited to conspiracies that require an overt act. The BIA caught this apparent discrepancy in this case at footnote 2 and stated that the different definition for conspiracy is okay because Section 204C and Section 101A43U use different statutory language. But neither the Supreme Court nor the circuits like it when the BIA defines the same word in the INA to have different meanings. Moreover, no circuit has ever deferred to or agreed with Matter of Richardson, and the only circuit to review the case, the Ninth Circuit, has concluded that Richardson is incorrect as a matter of law and violative of congressional intent and Supreme Court precedent. I, for one, will be arguing that Richardson is now fatally undermined, footnote notwithstanding, and if nothing else, to preserve the issue for petition for review. And that is matter of R.I. Ortega. Next up is Hernandez Lara v. Barr, published by the First Circuit on June 15, 2020. This is a bit of a long case, but the holding is simple. By denying Ms. Hernandez a continuance to obtain an attorney, the IJ denied Ms. Hernandez her statutory right to be represented by the counsel of her choice, which means that Ms. Hernandez is entitled to a new immigration hearing. Now, the First Circuit spent a lot of time discussing the procedural history because it's important and shows the various obstacles detained non-citizens face in immigration court, exacerbated by the current administration, which has prioritized case completion over apparently everything else. But to summarize it briefly, Ms. Hernandez was in detained removal proceedings before an IJ. She was represented by an attorney for bond only and was denied bond. She then received four or five continuances to obtain an attorney, but each continuance was only for a few days. And despite her search, she was still required to plead to the charges pro se, and to identify the relief she would be applying for, asylum, withholding of removal, and cat protection from El Salvador. She was also required to fill out an asylum application by herself, in English. But because she couldn't read or speak English, a fellow immigration prisoner helped her, and unsurprisingly, did a pretty bad job. DHS asked the IJ to deny Ms. Hernandez's application for this reason alone, but to the IJ's credit, he granted Ms. Hernandez another continuance. Ultimately, however, and although she had ended up hiring an attorney, the attorney couldn't appear at the final hearing, and the IJ forced Ms. Hernandez to represent herself. Her asylum claims were based on her fear of the 18th Street Gang in El Salvador, her resisting of their recruitment efforts, and the death threats she and her family received as a result. Ms. Hernandez made clear that this was happening to her family in particular, because her brother had been a member of the gang, but went to jail, so they were demanding that she replace him. The IJ denied relief. 
Represented by an attorney before the BIA, Ms. Hernandez filed an appeal and a motion to remand, arguing she was denied her right to counsel. The BIA dismissed the appeal and denied the motion, finding Ms. Hernandez had failed to establish good cause for a continuance and had not suffered prejudice because she had been able to put on her case by herself. The First Circuit reversed. It made clear that even under the BIA's 2012 case matter of CB, the continuance standard to obtain counsel is different than the good cause standard used for normal continuances. When a continuance is requested to obtain counsel, an IJ, quote, must grant a reasonable and realistic period of time to provide a fair opportunity for a respondent to seek, speak with, and retain counsel, end quote. By applying the good cause standard instead, the IJ and the BIA committed reversible error. Applying the correct standard, the First Circuit determined that the 14 business days, spanning four or five continuances, that Ms. Hernandez had received to obtain an attorney was wholly inadequate. The First Circuit specifically noted how unreasonable this short amount of time was in light of the fact that Ms. Hernandez does not speak English and was detained the entire time, making it very difficult to obtain an attorney. Turning to prejudice, the First Circuit dodged the circuit split regarding whether a non-citizen must establish prejudice when denied their right to counsel. Though the court did note that even the BIA in matter of CB indicates that prejudice isn't required, which begs the question why the BIA required a prejudice showing in this case. The First Circuit dodged the prejudice issue because it found Ms. Hernandez was prejudiced. Indeed, as the prejudice standard asks whether counsel would have, quote, affected the outcome of proceedings, end quote, it seems that denial of counsel will prejudice the non-citizen in most cases. The First Circuit's multi-page analysis makes this point without expressly saying so. So, the First Circuit sent the case back for a new hearing. Congratulations, Ms. Hernandez and her hard-working attorneys. Now, for some observations. Starting off, I'd like to congratulate my alma mater, Boston University School of Law, and its Immigration Right and Human Trafficking Program for successfully participating in the amicus filing in this case. Go Terriers! Next, and notably, Judge Lopez, in concurrence, would have the First Circuit enter the circuit split fray, and would not require non-citizens to establish prejudice when the right to counsel is denied, because that right implicates constitutional protections. I personally find Judge Lopez's reasoning quite compelling. And in fact, even the majority opinion held that, quote, the statutory right to counsel is a fundamental procedural protection worthy of particular vigilance, end quote. And because it's so important, the First Circuit will review the denial as a legal question subject to de novo review. With this ruling, the First Circuit has created, you guessed it, a circuit split with the sixth, seventh, and third circuits. Important distinction for practitioners to remember. Because requests for continuances to obtain counsel are governed by matter of CB rather than the good cause standard, former Attorney General Sessions' 2018 decision matter of LABR would appear inapplicable to such continuances. Bit of an aside, Ms. Hernandez was subject to an Interpol red notice based on her alleged membership in a gang in El Salvador. However, at footnote 3, the First Circuit makes clear, relying on the Department of Justice's own guidance, that red notice are not, quote, a sufficient basis to arrest the subject of the notice 
because a red notice does not meet the requirements for arrest under the Fourth Amendment. The BIA recently walked a fine line on this issue in matter of WERB, and the effect of red notices is an evolving dispute under immigration law. Footnote 3 provides ammunition for non-citizens to argue that red notices have little probative value in immigration court. And finally, as a former immigration court attorney advisor, I can't help but comment that it appears the IJ did his best to give Ms. Hernandez opportunities to present her case, giving her multiple continuances and even describing the type of evidence she could consider bringing. As the First Circuit infers in two footnotes, the IJ is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, required, as IJs are, to protect due process rights, while at the same time abide by new and seemingly arbitrary case completion requirements promulgated by the current administration. These new rules appear to do little more than infringe upon due process rights while at the same time make life exceedingly difficult for the immigration bar and IJs alike. I hope more circuits take notice. And that is Hernandez Lara v. Barr. The next case we're going to discuss is out of the Seventh Circuit on June 16th, Damien Ferreira v. Barr. And please excuse my terrible rolling of the R's. This case is about the visa waiver program and asylum. Mr. Ferreira is a citizen of Argentina who entered the United States through the Visa Waiver Program. The Visa Waiver Program allows citizens of about 20 countries or so to enter the U.S. for 90 days without a visa. But there's a catch. When the non-citizen enters the U.S. under the program, they waive, in writing, their right to removal proceedings before an immigration judge if they overstay their time in the U.S., and they cannot apply for any relief from removal other than asylum, withholding of removal, and torture convention protection. Mr. Ferreira entered the U.S. with his parents when he was 13 years old, and so his parents signed the waiver on his behalf. Many years later, he was placed in asylum-only proceedings, where he applied for asylum based on sexual assaults he suffered from his uncle in Argentina when he was a child. Even though he now had U.S. citizen family members, he was unable to apply for cancellation of removal because, as a visa waiver entrant who had waived his rights, he could only apply for asylum and related relief. The IJ denied his asylum claim and the BIA affirmed. Before the Seventh Circuit, Mr. Ferreira first argued that his waiver was not knowing and voluntary, as required under the U.S. Constitution, because he was a child, 13 years old at the time and his parents did it for him. The Seventh Circuit kind of punted on this issue. Instead of determining whether a minor can indeed knowingly and voluntarily waive his rights under the Visa Waiver Program, the Seventh Circuit simply held that Mr. Ferreira didn't cite to authority for the proposition he was asserting. Too bad, because it sounds like a pretty good argument to me. Then, the Seventh Circuit assumed arguendo that the waiver may not have been knowing, but held that Mr. Ferreira needed to establish, but could not establish, prejudice as a result. Turning to the remaining issue of asylum, the Seventh Circuit affirmed the asylum denial, essentially holding that Mr. Ferreira could not establish that his uncle abused him because of his membership in the family, rather than simply because he was young and his uncle had access to him. 
Also, Mr. Ferreira could not show that the Argentinian government could not protect him now, as an adult, and nearly 30 years later. Pretty rough, but such is asylum law sometimes. So, Mr. Ferreira will be returning to Argentina after many years in the U.S., and despite having several U.S. citizen family members, it appears. Not much great here for non-citizens, but here's an observation and a comment. First, and despite the Attorney General's decision in matter of LEA II, the Seventh Circuit issued a pretty blanket statement in this case, reaffirming its 2018 case, WGA v. Sessions, published before LEA II, stating that, quote, a person's family can be a particular social group whose members may be eligible for asylum if membership is a central reason for persecution, end quote. So certainly some good news there for asylum seekers. And lastly, Mr. Ferreira has been in the U.S. since 2001, since he was 13 years old, and he apparently has U.S. citizen family members. But DHS still chose to detain him in immigration prison for years as these proceedings played out. DHS had authority to release him from custody at any time. Based on the facts laid out in this decision, at least, there is simply no discernible reason for Mr. Ferreira's detention other than as a policy measure to somehow disincentivize other individuals from committing immigration violations and to help private prisons make money. I might not have all the facts, but if it's as it appears, it is truly sad. And that is Damien Ferreira Vibar. Next, we're going to discuss a case published by the Ninth Circuit on June 16th, Cordoba v. Barr. This case is about particular social groups, or PSGs, one of the protected grounds that entitle a non-citizen to asylum relief. Specifically, the Ninth Circuit held in this case that the social group Wealthy Landowners in Colombia is not a PSG recognized by asylum law because it lacks particularity and social distinction. Here are the facts. Mr. Cordoba claims that he and his family were persecuted in Colombia by the FARC because they were wealthy landowners. Whether Mr. Cordoba and his family were harmed does not appear to be in dispute. This case involves only whether Mr. Cordoba could show, as required by asylum and BIA law, that the harm he suffered was on account of one of the five protected grounds. In this case, his particular social group defined as wealthy landowners in Colombia. Under BIA and Ninth Circuit precedent, to constitute a PSG, the group must be immutable, particular, and socially distinct. Each one of those terms has a specific legal meaning. Here, the Ninth Circuit held Mr. Cordoba failed to show that wealthy landowners in Colombia are particular and distinct, and here's why. First, the Ninth Circuit deferred to the BIA's 2014 decisions matter of MEVG and matter of WGR which held that the social distinction prong turns, in large part, on whether the society in question, in this case Colombia, quote, recognizes persons sharing the particular characteristic to be a group, end quote. As relevant to this case, the question is, does Colombian society view wealthy landowners as a distinct group? This is slightly different than the pre-2014 Ninth Circuit case law originally relied upon in this case which had indicated that the perceptions of the persecutors 
may be the most important factor, rather than the entire society. In this case, while the evidence seems to have shown that the FARC view wealthy landowners as distinct, the evidence presented in this case did not show that Colombian society in general did. This proved fatal to Mr. Cordoba's claim. This was a short case with nothing really good for non-citizens, but it's worth remembering that with the PSG analysis so often now turning on whether the society in question views the proposed group as distinct segments of society, practitioners should throw the kitchen sink of expert affidavits and testimony, local and international news articles, affidavits from family and friends in-country, U.S. government reports, everything and anything, to really paint a picture of the society for the court. And remember, there exists case law out there for the proposition that the focus need not necessarily be on the entire country, but rather can be on a subset society, like a local community or city. And with that, we have Cordoba v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. For questions, comments, or anything at all, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at kktplaw.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at imreview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.